We'll transition now to our lesson. We've been doing a series, a several months series. Can you believe we've been going three months strong in 1 John? Three months. I mean, that's a long time, and we are only halfway through the book. So we'll see you guys in fall. Uh, we are halfway through this book, this wonderful book in 1 John. We're calling the series through 1 John for his glory and for our benefit. I hope you've been benefited through this series, because I have been. God has benefited my soul by studying this and studying this with you, and I hope, I believe that he's been glorified, and that's the whole point of this book. It's for him to be glorified and for us to be benefited at the same time. The lesson today is going to be called a two-way street. Hopefully you have your notes before you, you can follow along with those. A two-way street. We're going to be in 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. You can find your way over there. Before we get there, I'm going to do a little icebreaker. Do you ever wish your, your life could be summarized by a movie? If you could pick a movie for your life, just answer inwardly. What movie would best summarize your life? Probably a weird question. Probably a, several weird answers as well. In fact, one of these days we'll have to get those answers and compile a list. But I decided to come up with a list of things that uh, popular movies, because there are so many popular movies. If there were popular movies that we all know and I've heard about and maybe even watched, what if they were set in the North Country? What would the title of those movies be? It's kind of where we're going today. Popular movies, if they were set in the North Country, what would the name of those movies be? Let's start here. Number one, Nightmare on Cottage Street. <laughs> I live right off Cottage Street. That would be terrifying. How about number two, Home Alone, Lost in Whitefield? <laughs> Anyone been lost in Whitefield? I think I have, actually. Yes, Janet. Number three, Mooseless in Littleton. <laughs> That's real to life, that one right there. That's right. How about this one, a hike to remember? Anyone ever had a hike to remember? Sue, you've had a few. Yeah, several hikes to remember. I can hope I say this name right. If not, I'm going to be done here as your pastor. Pirates of the Kankamangas. Did I nail it? I worked on that all week long. In fact, if my lesson suffers, it's because of that. I spent more time trying to pronounce that name. Number six, E.T. the Extra-Touristial. Come on. Come on. Do you think it's easy to make funny ones every single time? E.T. the Extra-Touristial. Okay, how about number seven? Let's keep moving. Monty Python and the Holy Trail. Number eight, North Country for Old Men. Right? Applies to several of us. Number nine, Planet of the Ticks. <laughs> Definitely. A lot of ticks out there. Number 10, Gone with the Windchill. That's going to happen. This I heard we had, a, we had a, a calm winter this past winter, so we're going to get nailed this winter, aren't we? Number 11, Indiana Joel in the Last Crusade. I had to, man. I had to. It was right there for the taking. And our last one, Crouching Todd, Hidden Moose. <laughs> crouching Todd, Hidden Moose. You guys remember that one? Crouching, what was it? Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? What would, your, what would your movie be if it summarized your life? Well, today we're going to try to be summarized by one thing that First John is going to bring up. One thing that he's going to say should summarize the Christian. And he's continuing this theme through the book of First John, and he's going to Dive us into this one topic today. We're going to call it today a two-way street. 
So join me in 1 John chapter 3. I've encouraged you along the way to continue to read 1 John once a week. I do encourage you that to do that. I think that's going to be a blessing for your soul. You'll start to memorize some passages just by default, just by reading it over and over and over. So keep that practice going. We still probably have two to three months of 1 John left over. So even if you haven't started that, you can start now. Read through 1 John once a week. It only takes about 15 or 20 minutes. Let's read our passage together. It's 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. A two-way street is where we're going today. I want you to keep this in context of where we've been coming from this past lesson, although this was two weeks ago. Last week we kind of did a communion, a communion lesson that went along with chapter 3, verse 16. But if you remember the lesson before that, we called it the essential ingredient. And we talked about love being the essential ingredient. So we want to keep the passage today in context of what John just told us. That's really important so that we don't make it say something different than what John intends us to know. So even though that's probably hard to read, you can follow along in your own Bibles. Let's read these verses as well. It's 1 John 3, 11 to 15. This is what John told us previous to this lesson. He said, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's what John told us previous to our lesson today. We have a three-point outline today. Number one is the ultimate example. Going to kind of play off of last week's lesson about Christ and his sacrifice for us. Number two, a comparable calling. And number three, a gen the genuine article. Let's get right into it. The ultimate example. We looked at this a little bit last week, so we will, we will breeze over this a little bit, but we do want to remind ourselves of this ultimate example because John says this at the beginning of verse 16. He says, by this, we, and he's talking to Christians. He doesn't mean we as in the entire world. He's saying by this, we children of God, those who believe in Jesus, those who have been called by Jesus and have believed in him and have become his, his daughters and his sons, we know love. If you know Christ, then you lo know love because the two are interchangeable. God is love. If you know God, you know love. If you know love, you know God. So therefore, if you do know God, if you do know Jesus Christ, you've seen love face to face. You've seen it up close. Love has changed your life, has it not? Love has changed my life. I'm not here today without the love of God. So I know love because I've met Jesus. And the two are synonymous. John says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You guys remember the old song we used to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next line? For the Bible tells me so. And the Bible does tell us that Jesus loves us. But we also know it experientially, don't we? We know it because we believed in it and because it has changed our life. God's love through Jesus has changed our life. I'm alive today because of it. I'm a pastor today because of it. 
I'm a child of God today because of that great love. So John says this, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we talked about how profound that sacrifice is for Jesus to give up everything that belonged to him in order to love someone and help someone that was in need. We were those someones. We were those people in need. We were the sinners that had made ourselves rebels of God. We were going the opposite direction. We were following the devil on a straight path to hell. And Jesus intervened. And for him to intervene meant for him to lose all of his glory, all of his riches, come down as his own creation, become flesh, become a servant of man, and then die for those sinners on the cross so that we could have life. It's a profound sacrifice. It's one that we can spend our entire lives studying and not even hit the tip of the iceberg. What I believe John is doing is he's setting the foundation in verse 16 here for what he's about to tell us in the next two verses. And if you guys have ever been builders, you have to set that foundation, don't you? The house is not going to be strong and secure and going to last unless that foundation is built. So we spent time last week building on that foundation, talking about that sacrifice, talking about Jesus laying down his life for us. And John's going to do that now. He's going to say, recall that sacrifice. Recall what Jesus has done for you because the next two verses won't make sense unless you understand that. So we need to carry that in our pockets for the remainder of today's lesson, that Jesus laid down his life for us because that is the foundation for our souls. That is the foundation for what God expects of us as his children. We need to follow the pattern of Jesus. Now, if you've had children... Um, sometimes you have to be the example for your children. I remember when we're introducing new foods to my children, such as broccoli. My children find broccoli offensive. It doesn't taste like Skittles, does it? So they don't want broccoli. So sometimes what my wife and I have to do is show my kids an example of how we like broccoli. And it often turns out to that face on the right. Because I do not like raw. Does anyone like raw broccoli? Raw broccoli? Okay, everyone. Wow. <laughs> I'll eat it steamed and butter, but I'm not eating it raw. But for my kid, I will. If my kid is going to have to eat broccoli, guess who's going to have to eat broccoli as well? So I have to shove that in and put on my brave face. <laughs> because I'm trying to set a proper example for my child that broccoli is good for you. Broccoli tastes good, even though I'm probably lying. Don't tell them that. Um, but we need an example in life, don't we? We need someone to show us the proper way to go. And without that example, we're not really going to go the right way. If you've ever had someone teach you how to ride a bike, it's kind of the same thing, right? Or if you taught your child how to ride a bike, sometimes you get to go on that bike yourself and kind of embarrass yourself and show them that it's going to be okay. Show them by example. Well, John is going to remind us that Jesus led by example. Isn't that powerful? What if Jesus just taught us from heaven, just gave us sermons from heaven, and just said, listen, I'm going to teach you to go the right way, just listen to me and do what I say. That would be powerful. But the fact that he came down to this earth and gave up his life and served his fellow brother and sister, that he washed the feet of the disciples is a remarkable, powerful thing to know that Jesus said, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I won't first do. If I ask you to do it, if I command you to do it, I have done it already. And we can look at that in the scriptures when Jesus says, I want you to lay down your life for the brothers. Why, Jesus? Because I laid down my life for you. And I'm your example. So not only can you look at my teaching, not only can you look at my sermons, but you can look at how I lived. You can look at what I did with my life to set that example for you so that when I ask you to do the same thing, you can say, I understand what you mean, Jesus. 
So John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And put your name there. For you. For me. Jesus laid down his life so that you and I could have life, could find forgiveness, could find restoration with God, could find eternal life. We all have what we have today purely because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. You take Jesus away and his love for us, we don't have anything, nothing that matters, nothing that lingers, nothing that can satisfy the soul, nothing that can heal our sins. But because Jesus laid down his life for us, we have everything. In fact, we are called co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that he gets, everything that he expects, everything that is coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, which would blow our minds to understand what that is, is also coming to us because we're with him. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So Jesus laid down his life, and he did so because there was no other way for us to be saved. If there was another way, Jesus would not have had to die on a cross, but there was no other way for our sins to be forgiven, for us to find restoration with God. Sin had to be paid for. That's what a holy God expects. Sin does not get sweeped under the rug, sometimes like my children like to do, right? You don't see it, so it's not there. God can't do that with sin. Sin has to be paid for because God is a holy, 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 righteous God. And sin must either be paid for by us or by someone who can pay for that entire debt. And Jesus Christ was that payment. He came down, he yielded up his life, put himself upon the cross, let those that he created drive nails into his hands, all because he loved us. And John's reminding us of that example today. In Isaiah 53, if you don't know Isaiah 53, study that passage, memorize it even. It's one of the most powerful chapters you can read in the Bible. The prophet reminds us in Isaiah 53, and he's looking ahead to Jesus. Jesus was not yet upon the earth, but Jesus was going to fulfill this prophecy verbatim, as Isaiah stated, and he did. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you notice that? Pierced, crushed, chastised. That means punished and wounded. All because we were sinners and he wanted to save us. He wanted to redeem us. He wanted to restore that relationship with God. He faced our punishment for our sake so that we could have a right relationship with God and we could be co-heirs and we could one day go to the kingdom of heaven. And it's a remarkable thing to understand. And that foundation is going to be so important to what Jesus is going to call us to. If we don't understand that foundation, if you are not the we that John is talking about in, in verse 16, then we need to discover that today. We need to understand that Jesus came down to die for humanity. All of us are his creation. And he loves all of us. And he came to bleed and die and sacrifice his life so that we could become that we, children of God, and we could be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And as we mentioned last week, this basically had to happen this way because God said, I can spare humanity, but if I spare them, Jesus, I won't spare you. If they're not going to die, Jesus, you're going to have to die because sin has to be paid for. There is a life vest, there is a lifesaver, but there's only one. So if I give it to them, I can't give it to you. You will have to pay for their debt. 
And so that's what Jesus embraced. That before he even came to earth, Jesus understood that entire thing. And he came so willingly so that we would have eternal life. There's so much more we could state on that topic, but we did talk about that last week. If you have, need to remind yourself of that lesson, go back. But John has set that foundation for us because he's going to tell us something today that we need to do. And it's a really hard thing. It really is. This is nothing I want to just blow by and say, get out there and do it. This is something I really want to take time talking about because it's a very big and high bar that John is calling us to. It's really hard. It's really costly. And unless we understand the ultimate example, we will not understand our calling. One of the greatest privileges for a father is when their son kind of turns out like them. There's a picture of myself and my dad on the left. My dad has passed and gone to heaven now. But uh, I never saw my dad more proud than when I did things that looked like him. Did things that reminded of his legacy here upon the earth. And you can see my dad brimming with pride as I got ordained there as a minister. And then here's a picture I took of Haddon. I don't think he wanted to, but I made him. <laughs> because I'm, I'm getting him ready for this church one day. Um, but it's such a delight to see your sons and your daughters walk in the same way that you have been. If it's been a good example, of course. And that is what God delights in more than anything. He loves to see his children go the exact same way that he went or that his son went. So John tells us this in the end of verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was just a period there? Or an exclamation point. Let's just change it right there. And it was over. That was it. You know, we just, we, we talked about that verse and that, that's where we stopped. We didn't go beyond. And, and some churches sadly do. They talk about all the love that we receive and they stop there. Because that's a really easy way to grow a church. Did you know that? It's really easy to just talk about all the love we receive and stop there. That's a great way to grow a church because everyone wants to hear that lesson. Everyone wants to hear that you're accepted, that you're loved, and that you're forgiven because we are in Christ. If we have Christ, he does accept us, God. If we have Christ, we have been loved. And if we have Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. And that's an amazing thing to know. And we all love to hear that. It's inspiring. It's encouraging. It's motivating. It brings goosebumps to our arms. And I wish we could stop there sometimes because it's such an easy thing to preach. It's such, I don't get meetings in my office when I preach about such things. Everyone is my best friend that week. But... Jesus himself reminds us that that is only half the story, isn't it? Jesus came down and laid down his life for us, and then he said to every single one of us, now, pick up your cross and follow me. Do what I did for you towards others. And that's the part that's a really challenging for us as people. We love to hear the first half of the story. That second half of the story is really challenging. But John's going to bring it up, and he's hoping that that foundation that we just talked about is going to help us understand that we need to, and it's a delight to, follow Jesus in that pattern. And Jesus did this for his disciples. He told them this. He was not coy about this. He did not hide it. You know, he did not slip it into them three years after, going, by the way, I know you're three years deep into this thing, but now you've got to follow me. You know, he wasn't a slippery car salesman or anything like that. Jesus told them right up front. He said this before people followed him. He said in Matthew 16, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if you want forgiveness, if you want to be loved, if you want to be cleansed, if you want reconciliation with God, if you want to be a co-heir with me, 
you can have it all. But if you want to come after me, I'm going to ask you to do something as well. This is a two-way street. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you all of my blessings. Everything that belongs to me, you're going to get for the rest of eternity. But if you desire to come after me, let him or her deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, he's going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus is going to find it. And that's a remarkable perspective that Jesus is going to say, it's going to look like loss. When I ask you to give up your life, you're not going to receive that well because it's going to look like total loss upon this earth. And most people are not willing to just give up everything they own. But I'm going to tell you that if you forfeit your life for the sake of Jesus, you're going to actually find your life. You're going to find all the blessings that I've hidden and tucked away for you by simply following the pattern that I've given you. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's what he told his disciples. They heard that from the front, from the beginning, that if you want to follow me, this is the, this is the condition. Pick up your cross and do what I do. Follow the pattern that I give you. Now, it's true, and we say this, and we, we tell people this, and this is an absolute truth from God's word, that Jesus died so that we may live. Isn't it true? It's true. Jesus died so that I could live and you could live forever. We don't have to die, not the really bad death, not the eternal death, not the death for our sins, not the death in hell. None of us have to face that death. Glory to God because of Jesus Christ. Death is not our destiny. Death is not our final chapter. Life is our final chapter. Jesus died so that we might have life. Now, yes, we will pass from this earth, but for those who are in Christ, that's what it is. It's a passageway. It's a passageway from, from the shadow of death to the reality of life. And eternal life is the most life we will ever experience because we're in the presence of God. So it is absolutely true that Jesus died so that we may live. But what else is true? It's also true that Jesus died so that we may suffer with him on this earth. Because the Bible makes that abundantly clear. That our destiny is not death, our destiny is life. But our also present reality is going to look just like Jesus present reality when he was upon the earth it's going to look very similar it may not be to the degree that jesus experienced but we are going to have many parallels with his life in our life let's look at a passage that tells us that in hebrews chapter 13 i told you this is one of my favorite books we come to this passage in hebrews 13 towards the end of the book and the writer of hebrews says this kind of the same thing that first john is telling us he says jesus also suffered outside the gate and that's important to know that Jesus didn't, didn't die inside of Jerusalem with an honorable death. Like if, if someone honorable or a king or something like that is going to be executed, you do it in an honorable way, in an honorable setting, and, it, and it's a very, you know, a way to honor them sort of as they die. That's not what happened to Jesus, is it? Where did Jesus die? Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where criminals go to die. In fact, the two people hanging next to him were lifetime criminals. And there's Jesus in the middle, hanging there with criminals on a cross for sins he didn't commit. Jesus didn't die with honor. Jesus died with dishonor, at least on the earth. Jesus died along with the thieves and the crooks and the murderers in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He did it not for himself. He did it for us so that we would again be cleansed and healed and forgiven and have a future relationship, eternal relationship with God of the universe. 
But then the writer says this, Therefore, let us go to him. Where? Outside the camp. To the same place of suffering. To the same roads. To the same hill. To the same darkness. Let us go to where Jesus went for us and let us bear the reproach that he endured for us. Again, that's the uncomfortable part. That's the part we don't really like to talk about. Jesus dying for me, even though it's hard to speak about, I'm so thankful for it. But when Jesus says to me, come to me now outside the camp and bear the same suffering that I did, only do it for me. Don't do it to gain eternal life. Don't do it to find favor with God because I've already purchased that. Do it simply because you love me. Because this relationship that he's called us to is called a covenant. And in a covenant, it's a two-way street. And if a covenant is not a two-way street, it's not a covenant. If one person says, I love you, and the other person says, I don't love you, we don't have a relationship, do we? We don't have a marriage. We don't have a covenant. But if two people say, I love you, and the other person says, I love you, we enter into a covenant, and that covenant is supposed to be secure and eternal. Well, Jesus says, I love you. I have loved you. I do love you. I promise to love you for the rest of eternity. Now I'm going to ask the same from you. I'm going to ask for your love. I'm going to ask you to go to the same places that I went for my sake. Because you love me. And I'm hoping that you do. In fact, you can see this parallel in Scripture if you're paying attention. In Philippians 2, which is a passage Matthew brought up, it says that Christ emptied himself taking the form of a servant, a bondservant. And he did. He emptied himself completely. He died. He became a servant. He gave up himself on a cross and died the worst death you possibly could die. And he went from God's glory to the lowest of low on the earth. But then it says in Mark 8, 34, a passage to us, Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you see the difference? Or do you see the parallel? Excuse me. Christ emptied himself. He tells us to deny ourselves. He took the form of a bondservant. He says, listen, pick up your cross and follow me because you're going to act like a bondservant too. The same things that I did, the same places that I went, the same people that I served, I'm going to call you to do the same thing. And that's hard. That's a high bar. But that's the part that we get to give back to Jesus. When we get to heaven, it's easy to love Jesus. There's no darkness. There's no devil. There's no sin. There's no one hating us. There's no pains in our bodies. There's nothing against us in heaven. When we offer love to Christ in heaven, it's still love. But it's not the same love of doing it here upon the earth in the season of suffering. When we say to Jesus, even though it hurts, even though it's lonely, I do it for you, and I do it again. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to Christ. It's powerful, isn't it? And if you read Spurgeon's biography, the man suffered greatly. It's a powerful thing for him to say that. And so John is reminding us that if we say that we are in him, because all of us, most of us in this room would say we are Christians, we have believed, we do have eternal life coursing through our veins, then John says whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. His footsteps and our footsteps should be parallel tracks. That's the goal. That's the bar. That's what Jesus is calling us to. In fact, in Acts 11, this is the first time we hear this word, Christians, in the Bible. The first time it comes up is in Acts chapter 11. 
It says in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who was now the Apostle Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And if you do a little bit of digging, they were called that by the outside people because why? They looked like Jesus. They thought like Jesus. They lived like Jesus. They acted like Jesus. They loved like Jesus. They said the same kind of things. They did the same kind of things. They looked like Jesus. And it was a derogatory term to go, you guys are like little Christs. In fact, we're going to call you Christians. Because you look just like them. Maybe on that, not on the scale, maybe not to the degree, but the same kind of words, the same kind of actions are being done in you as Jesus did. So you're Christians. Today, in our culture, the only thing you need to do to be a Christian is put a little Jesus fish on your car, hang a little necklace around your neck, or just tell someone, I am a Christian, and they have to take your word for it. But back in the day, people called you Christians because you looked like Jesus. Isn't that powerful? If you've ever played the game Follow the Leader, which my kids love to play, they love being a leader, to get the entire group of kids to do whatever they do. It's hilarious. Sometimes I'll video it. Um, they love it because whatever they do, everyone has to follow suit and it's, it's a really fun game. It's a really simple game too. You just do whatever the first person does. Well, that's exactly what John is telling us and Jesus is reminding us of, that we are followers of the leader. That he's going to come down, he's not only going to teach, he's not only going to die, but he's going to give us an example of how we are to live. And then he's going to say to us, pick up your cross and follow my example. If I did it, you should expect to do it. If I told you to do it, you should expect to obey it. If I gave you the example, it is exactly what I want you to do. So John says again in verse 16, By this we know love. We know love. We know it by experience. We know it deeply and intimately. We know the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Well, guess who else needs love? Our family. The brothers and sisters of Christ also need to know practical love on a day-to-day -day basis. And therefore, John says, let us lay down our lives for the brothers so that they experience the love of Christ on a daily, practical level. And the way they know it is not just by Jesus' love, but by the love that we show them in the same vein, in the same pattern that Jesus did. It's very simple. You can boil it down to this. Do what Jesus did. If Jesus did it, it was right. Because everything Jesus did was right. If you do what Jesus did, you're always right. It's a, it's a phenomenal pattern. If you, if you talk like Jesus, if you do what Jesus did, you are on the right path. And over here we have other options, of course. There's other paths you can follow, and the, and the world is doing that. The world is marking their own pattern, their own pathway, going, I'm going to live my life my way. The only problem is it's not right. It's not good, and it doesn't bless your neighbor. And we're called to walk this narrow road, aren't we? The narrow road that Jesus walked, and it is a narrow road. It's full of thorns and thistles. It's lonely. It's got people against us. The enemy himself is against us. But we know we're winners. We know it leads to life. We know that if we follow the pattern of Jesus, we cannot fail. Isn't that true? If we follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, we cannot die. We cannot fail. We will only succeed. So it's quite simple. Do what Jesus did. Now, there's something I've learned else about children, and I really do love children. Sometimes I rag on them, but 
I have eight kids. You guys know I love kids, right? <laughs> I mean, eight kids. But children are really good at something. They're really good at knocking things down. They are. If one of my children is building something with blocks or Legos, there's a couple waiting in the shadows. As soon as, literally, as soon as that thing is built, to go knock that bad boy down because that's what kids love to do. They love to destroy. They love to tear down. I told you in one of my, one of my icebreakers, kids love to just destroy things for no reason at all. I'll just look over and they're destroying something. And I'll ask them, why? Why did you just rip that? Why did you destroy that? And they look at me like, I don't know. Just kind of what we do. But you notice what, I what, about, what, what, what I've noticed about tearing down? It's easy. It's easy to tear down. It doesn't take any work to tear down, to knock down. I once did demolition for, for a ministry in Virginia, and I had no experience in demolition. I probably shouldn't have been doing it. In fact, I got hurt doing it. But um, it was easy. I took a big sledgehammer and started knocking stuff down, and I was like, man, I can do this all day long. This is fantastic. Because it's not hard to knock something down, is it? What's hard? Building up takes a long time. Building up takes a lot of work, a lot of planning, a lot of years. And that's what Jesus did his whole life. He constructed. He didn't destruct, he constructed. He spent his whole life building up, building others up. And then he gave the ultimate sacrifice as he died. He yielded up his life so that we would have eternal life. And that's the part that he's calling us to. It's easy to knock down. The world is really good at knocking down. But I'm going to call you to building up. I'm going to call you to blessing. And the first people I'm going to call you to bless are your church family. Sure, I want you to love your strangers and your neighbors and the person at the store, the person you encounter at the doctor, but I want you to first and foremost love your family because if you're not good at loving your family, you're not going to love strangers either. So I'm going to call you to love the brothers and the sisters, and I'm going to call you to construct their lives with your love, by your love, so that they get stronger and better. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, primarily for Christians. That's what Jesus is calling us to and he's saying, follow me. That's what I did. This is what I want you to do. Follow my example. But then he goes on and he says this. He gets a little bit more practical. He says, listen, if anyone has the world's goods and notices and sees his brother in need, okay, so there's two things that are happening. Number one is you have goods. And thankfully, we're Americans. We have goods, okay? Even the poor people in America are still rich in the context of the world. So most Americans check to that one. If anyone has the world's goods. Now, we don't have all the goods, of course. But number one, if we have the world's goods, and he says, number two, you see a need. So that's what the two qualifiers. You, see, you have the world's good, and you see someone who is in need. But in this context, something else happens. He says, yet closes his heart against him. Isn't that an odd phrase? You, you have the goods, you see a need, you could bless someone, but you do something very strange. You close up your heart. I don't have time. I don't want to. It's hard. It's costly. It would require things of me. And you shut that heart down and you say, no vacancy. Not today. John says, well, if that happens, as a pattern and a theme of your life, how does God's love abide in you? Could it be possible that you have this enormous love pouring out of your heart and then when you see the similar situation that Jesus saw in us, we say, no, 
No, I can't. I won't. John says, that's a very strange thing. That equation doesn't really work. Now, it can on occasion. All of us can slip and fall. All of us have, on, on times, neglected to show love to our neighbor. It does happen. But John, again, is bringing up this idea of practice and theme. And the best illustration for this, of course, has to be the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? I couldn't think of a better, better illustration than this parable. Now, we don't have time to read the parable, but most of you know this parable. Okay? A Jew is walking down the road and comes across thieves and robbers who beat him half to death, take all of his stuff, and leave him there to die. Well, two people walk by. First one is a priest. And you think, well, of course, a priest, a pastor, someone like that would be the ideal candidate to walk by someone in need. But, of course, we know the story. The priest walks by on the other side. Well, Levi comes up, another very religious man, and notices the Jew in need. And he does the same thing the priest did. He walks by on the other side. We don't know why they walked by. We don't know if they just had a really busy day or if they didn't want to get involved or maybe they thought the, the thieves were still lurking in the shadows. And as soon as I go over and touch this guy, they're going to get me as well. We don't know why. It's conjecture. But either way, they passed by on the other side. And that's a sad part of the story, isn't it? Because you'd expect two religious people, two zealots, to go, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Thank you, Lord. What a divine opportunity to show your love to someone in need of course I'm going to take this opportunity. It's my privilege to love like you loved me. But they don't. They pass by on the other side. And this is where Jesus is telling those of us who think that's okay, that we just don't get it. We don't get it. We don't know how we can take that love, that enormous love that Jesus gave us, and not replicate it to other people. It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. You can't be a recipient of unfathomable, profound, bold selfless love and then go I can't show it to others I can't give a fraction of that love to someone else now of course in the story we know that's not where it ends because there's a Samaritan and as, if you know the context of Samaritans and Jews they were not friends okay if a Yankee fan comes in here it's a good picture right I'm not going to tell you what team I cheer for growing up. But if it, you understand the context, though. If, if two people are in the same room and they don't like each other at all, I mean, there's nothing similar. They think so differently on everything. In fact, there's some bad blood there. That's the less than ideal candidate to walk by the Jew, right? In fact, he might finish the job, finish that Jew right off. But that's not what happens at all. The Samaritan notices the need, and he doesn't have everything, but he's got a little money. He's got some time, and he takes that time. He takes that money. He bandages up his wounds, puts him on his own animal, takes him to the inn, pays for him to have a night's stay, he tells the innkeeper anything else that you pay for for this man, I'm going to come back and reimburse you. And Jesus says, that's your example. And it would be one thing if Jesus just said, listen, be like the Samaritan. But he said, I think he said, I'm the Samaritan in this context. And it should be the opposite. Jesus is the Jew, he's the king of the Jews. But Jesus is the one that came down and died for sinners. I mean, sinners and righteous people, they have nothing in common. I mean, we were going the complete opposite way than Jesus was calling us to and created us to. We were walking on the path to hell following the devil, and yet Jesus came down, saw our need, gave up everything that he owned, and died for our sins so that we could have life once again. I think the story's about Jesus. But it's also an example, isn't it? It's also a model for us to follow the same pattern. And you have to remember what John just told us. I told you to keep it in context. If we forget this part, 
This part is going to service us very well if we keep this in context. John said in verse 11, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. This is the old, ancient, tried and tested message that we should love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And we, we said when we went through this lesson, that's a very striking contrast, isn't it? Between loving your brother and murdering like Cain. Isn't there a third option, Jesus? Can I just be busy? Can I just be hurting myself? Can I just not have the time? He doesn't really give us that. He says, listen, love your neighbor or you're like Cain, the murderer. And he does it that way on purpose because of this parable is a good illustration for that. When the priest and the Levite walked by the Jew dying on the road. They weren't the one that knocked him down. They weren't the one that bloodied him. They weren't the one that stole him. But what did they do by walking by a dying man? They were at least in the camp of murder. Someone was in need. Someone was hurting. Someone was going to die. They didn't have everything, but they had enough to help this man. They had enough to stop by and give what they gave to help this man and heal this man. And the Samaritan did it. And the man was restored. The man's life was brought back to him. Do you see the contrast there? Love or murder like Cain? And that's, that's a really hard thing to know and a hard thing to preach. But that's really what John is giving us. He's saying, listen, love like Christ or hate like Cain. And there's really nothing in between. The question for us today is, when you hear things like God is, Jesus has died for our sins, we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, there's a slippery little deception of the devil that he likes to make us think that since God loves us, that he's about us. And I know it happens because it happens to my children. My children see this all the time. We give them things, we take care of their needs, we give them special treats, and my little kids especially start to get into this concept that maybe dad and mom exist for my happiness. That the, from the moment they wake up for the moment they lay down, they think only about how to make me happy. <laughs> because we love them. And it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. But the question is for us is why, what are Christians called to? What have we been called to as Christians? Are we called to gain for ourselves? Is that what Jesus has put us on this earth for? So that we could just amass things and get rich and happy and prosperous here upon the earth? Is that why Jesus did what he did? So that we could just have this happy, prosperous life upon the earth and then when we die, we die happy. And then we go to an even happier place. Or did he call us for something more profound? To multiply his kingdom. And the way to multiply his kingdom is through the same concept Jesus used. Love. He restored us, he redeemed us, he gave us new life so that we could give that same love to others so that they would have life. Another parable in scripture is called the parable of the rich fool. Another parable I don't have time to read, but in this parable, this man is so rich, has so many goods, he decides that he needs to build bigger barns. I have so many things. It's like you get a big storage unit going, man, I'm so rich. I have so many things. I, the, the best thing I could do is build bigger barns to hold all my stuff. So he does. In this parable, he builds bigger barns, stores all his stuff into the barns, and then he sits back, kicks up his feet, and relaxes. He's eating, drinking, and being merry, and life is good. He's got a lot. He's rich. He's happy. He's got everything he ever wanted. And in the parable, God says to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is going to be required of you. And all the stuff that you've attained and amassed, it's going to go to somebody else. 
Someone who didn't earn it. Someone who didn't amass it. Someone who didn't buy it and purchase it and work for it. It's going to go to somebody else who doesn't deserve it. And your soul is going to be empty and bankrupt before me because you lived for gain and not for multiplication. And it's very true about love that love requires sacrifice. The kind of love that Jesus gave us required sacrifice. The kind of love that he expects from us requires sacrifice. You guys may have heard of the term pay it forward, right? Pay it forward is a, is a concept even the world jumps on sometimes. That if someone shows them love, they're going to take that love and show it to someone else. And it's a great concept. The only thing about it is it came from Jesus and they don't know it. They're cherry picking from Jesus. That's Jesus' message. To take love, his love, and to multiply it in other people's lives. Because you take love, you show it to three, they show it to ten or whatever, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And everyone gets more love, everyone gets blessed, everyone gets more life, everyone gets relationship with God. The world gets stronger and healthier and more full of light. That's the message of Christianity. That's what God has called us to. And the cool thing about it is, when you do this, God's going to take care of all of your needs. Because that's a promise of him. He's not going to say, listen, it's all about sacrifice and suffering and you're going to have zilch. You're going to have nothing. You're going to suffer and bleed and die and be for God and have a miserable existence. That's not what God says. He says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. Everything you need. Not necessarily everything you want in the flesh, but everything you need in this life, I'll give it all to you. If you seek first the kingdom of God, if you seek to jump on my pattern and follow my ways, I will give you everything you need. You'll have everything. We've talked about the ultimate example. We've talked about a comparable calling, and we've got to quickly move through the genuine article because this is how John ends. He says in verse 18, little children, again, using very affectionate term, he wants them to know he loves them. I love you. You are my children in the faith, and I want the best for you. He says, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Why, John? Why not love in word? Why not love in talk? That's, that's okay to do, right? When I bless people by telling them I love them and encourage them with my voice, that's okay to do. That's not what John is saying, that talking love is no love. It's just cheap love. Now, we looked at a little while ago some cheap knockoffs. You guys remember that? Uh, yeah, we found some cheap knockoffs that exist in our world. Um, if you don't want Starbucks and you want to pay a little less, get some Sunbucks. Probably tastes like dirt, but pay a lot less or have the nut master over there. Um, the, the thing about talk is that not that it's nothing, but it's cheap. It's a bargain. It's a bargain to talk your love. It is. It's a bargain. It doesn't require a lot. You just tell someone how much you love them. You bless them with your voice and your words. And that should be enough because that's something. We did something. We said something nice. And the world does this. And the reason they do this is because it's cheap. It doesn't require a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money and a lot of pausing your life to help someone in, de in need. Talk is cheap. And John reminds us that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the assumption is it can't. It cannot. It cannot abide in the same love that is closed against our neighbor. It can't. That can't be the love of God residing in there because the love of God would open that heart. That heart would blossom. That heart, heart would pour out love and joy and thanksgiving and charity towards their neighbors. 
And sometimes, sometimes, and I need to be careful how I say this, but sometimes even prayer can be a cop-out. It's good to pray for your people. It's good to pray for your church. I'm thankful that for those who pray for me. I really am. But I have done this. I admit it. That I've seen a need, a clear need, and I've said to that person, I will pray that that need is met. Instead of going, could I meet the need? Maybe praying to God, saying, God, show me how to meet that need. Give me the opportunity to meet. Let me be the person that walks by them and bandages up their wounds. Oftentimes, I'll say, I'll bless you with a prayer. Boy, I really hope someone comes by and stops for you because you're really suffering. And I hope God sends somebody. I really do. God, please send someone to this person hurting instead of going, I'm the one that just saw the need. Maybe it's me that's supposed to stop. Prayer is good. I don't want you to leave it out here thinking I'm anti-prayer. I am pro-prayer. But I'm also pro-sacrificial love, and so is Jesus. Now, if Jesus did this for us, we could apply that model to our lives. If Jesus just said, listen, I'm not coming down, that would require a lot of me. You know, I'm not going to come down to the earth. But I will tell you I love you, and I'll put it in the sky. You'll see it as a message. I love humanity. And I hope things get better for you. I really do. In fact, I'm going to pray that things get better for you. I hope you find forgiveness and cleansing and restoration with God, and I hope one day I see you in heaven. Good luck to y'all. Is that what God did? No, he came to this earth. He became flesh. He left everything he had in heaven. He died, he suffered, he bled for our sake. By his wounds we are healed. And John's reminding us of the simple but profound equation. See a need, meet a need. It's so simple, sometimes we overshoot it, don't we? We overthink it, going, ah, that can't be that profound. It can't be that much of a blessing for me to see a need, someone hurting, and then bless them with what they need. And John's going, it is. It is because that's what construction looks like. And sure, every brick you lay doesn't look profound, but if you lay those bricks over and over and over and over and over and over again, guess what you're going to have one day? A massive, glorified tower of Christ-like love that one day will exist for the rest of eternity and no one, not even the devil himself or my kids, can knock it down. And that's a beautiful thing to know. That when we do that, and we do that as a pattern and theme of our life, we are doing something profound. We're acting like Jesus. And Jesus, the bricks that he laid in our life, did something profound for me. I'll tell you that as a first-hand example. Ephesians 2 it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, because he is rich in mercy, what did he do? Made us alive in Christ. And we can't overstep the, the cost and the sacrifice that God the Father paid when he took his only begotten son. And remember what Abraham was willing to do with Isaac? You remember that? He was willing to lay Isaac on the altar and pick up the knife, ready to kill Isaac. But guess what happens in the story? He doesn't have to. The angel of the Lord calls out and says, don't kill your son. I know that you're going to obey me. But guess what happened with God the Father? The knife did drop on his son. Jesus did die. He went the extra mile so that you and I could be made alive together with Christ. And there's our example. Our example is that Jesus didn't talk about death. He didn't talk about sacrifice. He didn't bless us with a prayer only he came and gave up his life literally on the cross. Something he didn't deserve because he knew that without it, we were all facing a miserable, 
torturous, eternal destination. So in every lesson, we find something that glorifies God and find something that benefits our soul. I think the ones, this one's pretty obvious today. God is glorified when through love we multiply models of Jesus upon the earth. We as Christians love others and that pattern of love encourages them to find Jesus and then they become Christians and they continue to love and love and the whole thing spreads and picks up steam and all, suddenly there's people in light and love agents and Christian agents all over the planet loving like Christ loved us and the world sees God. The world takes their eyes off of the world, off of sin, off of Satan, and goes, there's a holy, righteous God who loves me. And I get to serve him. And God is glorified when we do that. But we're also benefited when we line up behind Jesus and we follow his footsteps in love to the kingdom of God. Because that's where it leads. And it's the only path that leads there. There's no other path. You can't dodge love and get to the kingdom of God and going, man, I thank you for your love, but I'm not going to give love. I'm just going to receive love. That doesn't work scripturally. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. Every single Christian has to make that decision. And that's what leads to the kingdom of God. That pattern. And I want to remind you that Jesus did this for us first. And, and John used this word we at the beginning in verse 16. I don't know if you're a we. I don't know if you're a child of God. I can't assume that. I can only know my state of my soul before God right now. I don't know if you are a child of God, but I want you to do that, that homework in your mind, in your heart to say, am I a child of God? Have I received the love of Christ? Because if you haven't, you can receive it today, this very day. The cost has already been paid. Your sins are already been forgiven. All you have to do is turn to Jesus and say, I need you. I need you and I accept what you've done for me and I desire to follow the same pattern you left for me here upon the earth. And that can happen this very day. You become a child of God, a co-heir with Jesus. You have eternal hope for the rest of your life. It's the biggest blessing anyone could ever receive. Our application today before we close is very simple. Notice the needs. And I, I almost made this one thing, but I made them two because I think number one is really important. I don't want to go by that too quickly because I think noticing the needs makes a difference. I think we're so fast-paced in our culture, so busy in our culture, that we honestly sometimes think, go, I didn't see any needs. I was in my office the whole week. I mean, I was doing stuff. Maybe next week I'll see a need. We're so fast-paced, so busy, so attached to devices and things like that, sometimes we don't even notice the needs around us. Sometimes what we need to do is look around. Pray and say, God, show me a need. Reveal a need to my life right now that I might be the vessel of love to someone in their life right now. Notice the needs, number one. Number two, if you do see the need and you do have the goods, by God's strength, strive to meet the needs in Christ-like love. And I want to make sure this is an absolute point we remember. Christ-like love it costs a lot to show that. It is sacrifice. It is Pain, it is loss, but I want, I want you to understand something before we leave. Christ-like love is the greatest privilege in the entire world. You know that one of the worst things about hell is we can't be loved. You know the other worst thing about hell? We can't love. We don't get to love another person or God for the rest of eternity. And that is a travesty, that we can't love another. God has given us this ability, this opportunity to love 
our fellow people and to love him. And it's the greatest privilege the world has ever been given. And yes, it's going to cost something of us. But when we do it, we look like Jesus. We bless the world and we construct the kingdom of God by his grace. It is a two-way street. We receive the love of God and then we take that love and we offer it back to our brothers and sisters and to the world so that they too can see the glorious God that we serve. And that is a true privilege. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, thank you for this message on love. I know that you've sent this message to my heart, Father. I am a student and a fellow journeyman as well, and I need your love daily because I need that pattern to be shown to me daily because they're hurting people around us. And I don't want to just preach on love. I want to be a vessel of love. And I pray that for my church as well, that we would become vessels of love, vessels of usefulness to bless our neighbor, to build the kingdom of God, and Father, to look like Jesus. What a privilege. Help us, Father, in that direction. Bless us even this day with those opportunities that we can love our neighbor because you have loved us first. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand one more time and sing with us?